This is episode 159 of PZ's podcast entitled The Happiest Actual Life. And the prelude was Gerald Fried's very short uh, music uh, by which to have a nervous breakdown. That's my title from the movie The Cabinet of Caligari with Glynis Johns and Dan O'Herlihy from 1962. And it depicts a young or sort of 35-year-old-ish attractive woman on the way to something, and uh, she has a breakdown. Her car uh, develops a flat. And the metaphor in the movie is of a person in the prime of their life, the prime of Miss Jean Brody, having a total breakdown experience. And I want to talk a little bit about the (coughs) happiest actual life, which is actually a... um, quotation from the American novelist Booth Tarkington, who was sometimes accused in his era, which is the sort of period after World War I when he became most famous, um, he was accused of having somber or less than happy endings. Uh, We might call them today ambivalent endings or ambiguous endings, not tragic, but not wholly happy in the way that people in that uh, day were often accustomed to having, even in you know, serious literature, and he said, my endings actually reflect how it goes with the happiest actual life. In other words, um, the the happiest life actually that occurs, lives that actually end or conclude or resolve themselves, given all the circumstances and givens of a person's life, that actually resolves themselves short of complete breakdown, tragedy, and alienation, those are actually happy in context of human existence. And I think that's actually the case because a lot of people um, end their lives, uh, come to the end of their lives in grievous circumstances. Even people like you and me who we might say are relatively hopeful about ending our lives or concluding our lives or resolving our lives in some kind of positive um, self-understanding and serenity and decent circumstances actually end up, you know, in one little tiny room with a little picture of a grandchild and um, an indifferent uh, male nurse who comes occasionally to check in on us and no community whatsoever except the visits that we long for from our children or grandchildren or nieces and nephews and the a modest sense of community that we may derive in the most places where people who become older actually conclude their earthly existence. So his point is very possibly true that the even what we might call um, ambivalent endings are actually for Tarkington the way it is even in the happiest actual life. And a case in point, I want to sound here like Rod Serling. Uh, This is an instance of the finger post, an instance of the Twilight Zone, is I've just seen a face. I can't forget the time or place. That is to say, Alice Adams. Now, Alice Adams is a novel that was published in 1921 and written by Booth Tarkington. And I don't um, need to give you a lecture on Booth Tarkington. Uh, You may say, oh, this is another one of Paul's innumerable deceased uh, authorities. And I'm sure this falls into a category, and yet I feel it comes more under the category of the maxim, the 
teacher comes when the student is ready. I've never read anything by Bruce Tarkington. I was attracted recently through something that I noted, which is the readiness of the pupil. That is, I was receptive to something that I read somewhere about the Magnificent Ambersons. And I think if you've followed these podcasts, you'll know that that moved into an actual reading of um, his novel around 1916 or 18, is it, uh, The Magnificent Ambersons. And then something that I read said that if you want to get really a, an even greater achievement of the nature of human existence and reality and life in the context of a relatively small growing city in America, supposedly um, modeled on Indianapolis, which was Tarkington's home, read um, Alice Adams, and then when you actually read Alice Adams, and I can honestly say that I've read it three times now, uh, the, uh, what he's really up to is actually so impressive uh, and so really relevant to the way human lives resolve themselves, let alone my own, that I think I actually can bear some interesting news from the kind of inspiration that I believe um, the Indiana novelist who lived much of his life in Kennebunkport, Maine. I think I can give you a um, some news. I met her in church, not on a Saturday night, but on a Sunday morning. Let's hear it for the box tops. Golly. Well, um, the happiest actual life. I'm going to raise questions about the narrative of Alice Adams. You don't read, need to have read, read the novel. I hope you'll actually go out and read it. You, it's, it's Project Gutenberg. You can get it on a PDF. You can find it online, or you can very easily order it. It's a was once just extremely uh, well-known, and it was made into a very fine Hollywood movie, which I've also seen three times, starring Catherine Hepburn and Fred McMurray and some other very fine supporting actors and actresses. In 1935, directed by George Stevens, I think it was his first directed movie, at least main, central, mainstream movie that he actually directed in full feature. And it's very, very good. It's absolutely um, true, just as Orson Welles' treatment of the Ambersons is true. So is Stevens and the others who put it together, treatment of um, Alice Adams. Absolutely true to the spirit of the book, save the ending. And that's something we can talk about, but let's not talk about it now. Now, the great um, happiest actual life ends with some questions and some uh, some unresolved uh, intellectual questions, and also some resolved um, questions about the nature of reality. I've often said that the uh, purpose of life, as it was told me by someone whose opinion I trust 100%, that's very few people, isn't it, that you can name, but I do in this case. And um, it, it, she said to me, um, the purpose of life is to know yourself and to know God. There was an additional sort of a phrase about the means by which to do that. But let's just talk about that. The happiest actual life, to quote Tarkington again, would be a life that both involves self-knowledge and um, some knowledge of what uh, ultimately lies underneath and around. But let's say underneath everything that we find out about ourselves and hence through others, thence through others. And um, 
I'm going to raise a few questions that come out of the narrative that are broad questions that they've come to me through the um, muse, the Holy Spirit-given gift that Tarkington received as he wrote this most remarkable book. And um, I'm going to raise these big questions and then attempt to say a few, just one or two things about them. And as I say, you don't need to have read the book, but I hope you will. It's very easy read. He wrote very, very well and vividly and compellingly. Who is Alice Adams? On the surface, she's a 22-year-old sort of faded belle of the ball who is trying to capture um, something good for her future. And she's failing miserably with the massive negative, um, uh, discouraging um, uh, energies, dark energies, sapping energies, dispiriting energies of her mother in particular, her father in part, and her brother, because this family, the Adamses living in town, let's call it Indianapolis, it has another name in the book, I think, and the movie, let's say that this is what we today would call a dysfunctional family, and uh, they're all shouting at each other all the time, and I can go into all that, but what um, Alice, uh, her way of dealing with the tremendous problems that she has at home is to create an enormously um, subtle fantasy world of feints, F-E-I-N-T-S, and dramatic uh, pictures of herself, which she projects to the world, which is almost completely false. And fortunately, the writer shows the despair underneath the complete uh, pantomime and theater and false impressions that she's giving the whole world, these impressions being seen through by almost everyone except people that haven't... um, known her more than five minutes. And so she thinks she's putting one over on the world based on this theater that she presents about who she is, and um, no one is fooled. And fortunately, uh, Tarkington has at least two scenes in the book in which she, um, looking in a mirror, wouldn't you know, is um, facing herself and realizing that underneath is a despair so deep and so dark that almost the moment her smile fades or she leaves the room or she's putting on a front, uh, a a grim look of total despondency uh, falls over her face and her whole body language. She slumps into a position of kind of just deadly walking. It's a little like that scene in Dracula Dead and Loving It by Mel Brooks in which the uh, vampire, the brides of Dracula, enter the room and uh, are so seductive and so um, preying on the Jonathan Harker, their victim, and they come up to him with this incredible seductive but also threatening manner, mincing manner, and then uh, Dracula comes in and dismisses them, and they walk out sort of like, you know, the way English women walk, thump, 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 you know, they, they move from uh, a continental extreme uh, ballet movements to thump, thump, despair, and you have exactly the same scene concurrently with the mother of Alice Adams and um, Alice herself. So she's a woman who's putting on a false front uh, at the deepest level, and it's a failure, and it's a total failure. Now, there's another uh, massive uh, factor. Because she doesn't want anyone to know who she is, and she has no idea who she is, but she's wondering at age 22. She's wondering, and circumstances make her really wonder, because who she is actually is a suicidal and desperate woman who is completely and totally missing everything, and glub, glub, glub. She's going down, really, for at least the second time. 
a figure comes into her life which expresses, but it comes simply out of fact. It's this is there's no not once is there a religious or philosophical statement, possibly at the very end in a kind of speech by the father that is very, very guarded and really wonderful and actually most uplifting. And it's captured, by the way, by the actor Fred Stone in the film. He He's able to capture the sort of um, Catherine Hepburn doesn't quite get it at the end her her approach to her father, but her father in the book speaks a kind of wisdom to her that is utterly credible and completely comes out of the situation. It's absolutely not forced. I remember I was uh, absolutely shocked once when I was dealing with a, a New York uh, psychoanalyst. Uh, I was not her patient, but uh, she was a member of our church and very sophisticated and actually highly refined person. And I was visiting her in her New York apartment to. Um, just make a parish call, although I, I knew her from Sunday mornings uh, out in Westchester and her office, and uh, I was describing a pastoral situation I was in and <clears throat> and explaining what I thought it was about, and she said, oh, you're so over-interpreting. I mean, this 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 woman just came came at me with an extraordinarily vivid statement. Oh, Paul, you that you are so overinterpreting, and I I've never forgotten it because um, there is a tendency in all of life, and certainly in Christian preachers, to overinterpret things rather than allow them to speak for themselves. That's a very ancient point, but we do it in everything. Um, and uh, not just Christian preachers, everybody overinterprets and brings there what the Buddhists call your story, but it's not a Buddhist uh, um, uh, possession, this insight that you have all these stories that you bring to reality that you impose upon them, and then you sort of constrain or perceive things through the, the uh, lens or through the um, grill of your story. And um, Tarkington doesn't do this, but he does present a character in the book, right at the very, very beginning, uh, almost at the very beginning, I think it's in chapter two, and you realize later what's happened, a character comes into it who really is pure, unconditional love. I use that word specifically because a kind of beau who's never met Alice before and knows nothing about her fading and really highly self-justifying and truly obnoxious and ultimately dishonest, dishonest at, at the level of, of prosecution. Uh, and um, we understand why, but there's a level of dishonesty which is, comes into it from uh, of which Alice's self-projection is only a kind of a 22-year-old theatrical version of it. And uh, a character comes into it who actually loves Alice, and he never explains himself. The writer is so powerful that he allows us to believe that this man is simply attracted to Alice, her kind of her, her winning ways, you might say, but not her self-presentation, which she doesn't even relate to. It, it is an example of a lover who loves the beloved for reasons that are entirely his own. There's no skepticism, there's no questioning, there's no trying to get to the facts, and uh, at two different points where he hears the real facts, he actually comes into possession of the real facts about Alice and her family, he's not put off. Uh, and um, he, he represents pure love that has absolutely no, um, what some would call attachment to outcomes, I would call it, uh, is entirely uh, indifferent to the intrinsic uh, qualities of the person. And here we have a, a highly New Testament um, um, picture, at least it's partially presented in the New Testament, and, and when the New Testament is really on, profoundly presented in the New Testament, of a love that is entirely um, unhooked from the intrinsic merits and demerits of the person who is loved. And the Fred McMurray character, who in the book is named Arthur Russell, played by that actor in the movie, Arthur Russell uh, communicates 
to us an indifference to anything intrinsic about Alice Adams, who is a terrible, we might say, really a sort of a terrible character. She is a, she's cruising for a bruising, and she is a terribly, she's a one massive deceit after another, and they mount, the deceits, the lies that she tells mount in significance and importance. And um, so uh, first you have the question of who in the world am I, which the very character of Alice Adams presents with such prosaic human sympathy and power. Prosaic because your situation is prosaic. Power because your sympathy is so completely with this um, uh, really completely wrong-footed character and her family. And then you have... Um, this agent that comes into it who's completely indifferent to anything intrinsic about her and seems to simply be attracted to her for reasons of his own, although she's very pretty in human terms. She wants to be beautiful, and she is somewhat beautiful, but it's, it's so much of her smile and her um, vivacity is uh, rooted in a, in, a, in a picture that she's trying to present and not rooted in her own real understanding which is very somber, bordering on the tragic. And then we come to the fact that the novel situation turns on the fact is, how is love received? Um, assuming that we don't know our you-know-what from a hole in the wall, that's to say we truly are misconstrued, <coughs> misunderstanding ourselves, and we find love comes to us, and it does come with a, through usually through a man or a woman. I mean, I would say 99.9 .9 cases it comes in some vivid pictorial incarnate manner through a man or a woman we um we awaken and uh the question then becomes how do we deal and alice comes to the conclusion that the only way she can um uh kind of uh, restore her own judgment and condemnation what we today would call self-judgment her own sense of humiliation which is radically self-generated which her father later puts his finger on she the only way she can deal with grace is to say no to it in a way, it's a kind of Arminian uh, uh, situation because, in a way, she draws attention to the fact that the only way she can um, reject uh, Arthur Russell, who represents all that is hopeful and good in terms of love coming to her, that is that is uh, um, neutral about, does not judge her for her very judgeable offenses, which the whole rest of the town, especially her 20-year-old uh, peers do, she is... Um, she realizes that what she's going to have to do to vindicate her own deep self-condemnation is to, in a sense, devise a way to reject him. And this is very deep. I mean, this is very, very, actually very real. And uh, the ending then, and this is not what today is so often put in caps, a spoiler, because I'm just going to tell you the mood of it. Um, uh, is he going to come back even after having been – does he, would he, could he, Arthur Russell, return in love to her even after she has um, sort of ratified her own self-understanding by means of a massive explicit rejection, which is so completely back to front or, you know, half the, you know, the blank afterwards, all those sorts, whatever the word is, it's back to front or – and it's truly self-punitive or um, – and when she sort of finally recognizes what's going on uh, and she does uh, accept her state or her fate, and I find the ending uh, actually uplifting, as we have said before, the happiest actual life. You know, look, you and me, actually, it's very rare that we actually have that happiest actual life. Let's be thankful that Alice, at the end of the novel given over to her state, 
recovers to the extent that she does recover and finds a way forward, even if it is not the one that she would have wished. It is a powerful depiction of acquiescence in the face of circumstance. And I myself believe that you could write a sequel to Alice Adams in which Arthur Russell's love is not, in fact, rejected, but takes a... um, but she is able, through her own understanding, to find him again. I think it's open. Though. I think it's open. I think it's about 80% nay, but I think it's maybe 20% open in the light of what actually she accepts as her fate. And um, we're going to come to the end of this because I want to talk about a piece of music. Now, let's uh, finish with that then and say that uh, the conclusion or the penultimate scene in which her father, who's sort of found... There is, by the way, an, a, an explicit um, Christian, Christian denouement to one aspect of the novel <clears throat> that is, um, just comes out of it. It never mentions God or Christ or anything like that, but it's, it's explicit nevertheless, as you'll see. <clears throat> and um, you feel that... Um, when the father ruminates on what is happening, and he says first he realizes that uh, when you thought you were spang against the wall, when your back was up against it, um, something came up that helped you. There was a benign, we would call this, you know, the universe is friendly, but there is a benign meaning to life, which she has already seen in the coming to her of uh, Arthur Russell, and which her father had actually seen already in uh, the uh, the extremely benign and compassionate uh, approach earlier in the novel and finally in the novel of his boss, the very wealthy Mr. J.A. Lamb. Uh, and um, we've seen the good come even when their back is against the wall. And that's what I saw on the 2nd of April, 2013 in Chapel Hill, that uh, there's a um, divinity that shapes our ends, rough few them as we may. And I saw it so clearly that it made me believe in God again as a good God, as a good reality. And then he points out the fact, however, that um, um, having seen the goodness that we punish ourselves, that most of the problems we have, this is his second point, if you were going to schematize it, is uh, his second point is that we... Um, we judge ourselves, and we actually create the situation of negativity right across the board, which the novel has demonstrated out of the reality of living, and I think it's absolutely true, and Alice sees it. And then Alice sort of gropes along to a little word about immortality and what is life really in its ultimate perspective, and you don't know at that point whether Tarkington is mocking what she's saying, she's trying to give a kind of placebo again, or whether she actually believes what she says, but there's something about the nature of living that seems to give her the belief that although she's had and her family have had a massive and resounding well-deserved defeat. There is a future. There's something to that I think we're meant to take home. So we have a kind of a, a, a sermon emerging out of total reality without ever being called a sermon. And as you'll see, it's not a sermon when you actually hear it, because in a way, the, the author almost takes it away. The moment he says it, he's so diffident about saying anything uh, sort of big uh, because he wants the situation to itself to find the situation. He wants the, the, uh, the narrative to be the meta-narrative. He wants the, the story to be the story with a capital S. He doesn't want to impose upon it any kind of over-interpretation or interpretation at all. And yet it's very uplifting, very, very uplifting. And I think even, if I may say, that the uh, movie, uh, which has a different ending, uh, just it's been hotly accused of being a Hollywood ending, and it is. Uh, and yet, and yet, the ending, the way it's—I'm sure they worked days and days to get the dialogue. The um, the is plausible in light of what the novel is showing about Arthur Russell and the nature of 
existence. It doesn't for a second, the so-called happy ending, uh, take away from the possibility inherent in the characters and the situation that Booth Tarkington has so inspiringly presented. Now, I conclude uh, with that uh, a kind of a musical uh, statement of how it sort of ends. I'm sure you've all seen Five Million Years to Earth which was made, wasn't it, in the 60s? 66 or 67 or 65. A hammer uh, horror, a science fiction film based on Nigel Neal's Quatermass series. <laughs> Wonderful movie with Andrew Keir and James Donald and Barbara Shelley. And um, it's an alien invasion movie with a kind of happy ending. But it's a happy ending with a very, very... Uh, deep uh, kind of tragic reality. It's kind of the happiest actual life of a science fiction story by Nigel Neal. It's the happiest actual ending that it could be, but because of the events that it depicts, it's somber. <coughs> and so the music <coughs> that is uh, played at the very end of the movie over the credits, and you'll see they dissolve. It's very artful, actually. The credits of Five Million Years to Earth, which was often called Quatermass and the Pit, but the credits of the Hammer movie, as they role, they put over them a special musical uh, bit that was written not by the main composer of the movie, but by someone else named Dennis Furon, I think. And uh, the concluding uh, uh, dissolves over a situation that is both uh, victorious, the happiest actual resolution of the story, and yet is uh, overlays a kind of tragedy and defeat to the human race. I'm not expressing that properly, but you'll see it immediately if you see it. It's easy to rent. It's on TCM about every week. Um, but the music connotes what I might call the happiest actual life. And you all think it's sort of somber, but I think it's perfectly fine. And I leave this music with you as a kind of, kind of emblem of uh, the happiest actual life, which ultimately does involve a... Um, an understanding of who we are and the creator of most of our problems and a really realistic understanding of human nature with the conviction and the experience, far more the experience and the conviction, that as Mr. Adams says, when you're, when you're spang up against the wall, something you didn't expect turns up. Thank you very much. <laughs>